Now, less than two weeks for the Chinese Communist Party is going to be very busy. And now only the sitting Chinese President Xi Jinping is going to continue or hopefully that continue his third term as the president for the country. But meanwhile, and his political and also this economic agenda seem going to face much greater challenges, not only for the people in China, but also across the world. But meanwhile, let's take a look at the news in the US and very soon, this country is also going to have another major midterm election, which the result could impact the parties, especially for the Democrats, greatly. But in this episode, when we talk about China, when we talk about the US, especially this ongoing political and also this economic deadlock, we need to bring Taiwan back into the picture. Now, based on the report that for Taiwan, there's going to be another midterm election and somehow China does not seem very much appealing to this election. But meanwhile, something you should know that Taiwan has officially announced that reopened up to the world and in terms of tourism and many other purposes. Is this a desperate measure or this is going to be a new phase? Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, Brian Hugh. And Brian is one of the founding editors of New Bloom, and he's a freelance journalist as well as a translator. Brian, and welcome back to The Missing Piece. Thanks for having me. It's good being here. No problem, Brian. The pleasure is all mine. Now, let's get started. As we mentioned before, the whole world paying attention to the country of China and also to the U.S. and most of them, people are very much interested regarding this political changes. But meanwhile, in Taiwan, this midterm election, it's also significant and quite essential. Now, help us to understand this logistics and also uh, uh, the much greater purposes behind this midterm election in Taiwan. Yeah, so as you alluded to earlier, uh, China is not always the main factor at play with regards to the elections. Uh, there are other political issues at stake, uh, domestic political issues, economic growth, uh, environmental issues, social issues, and so forth. And so that is what's occurring uh, with this election, because this occurs for city councillors and mayors. And so this is not actually occurring at, for example, the presidential level or in terms of legislators. And usually those set of elections are much more within the China frame, in which China does come up as an issue. Uh, if you actually do leverage too much on the China issue within elections in Chinese domestic politics and when it comes to domestic elections and midterm elections, you will then actually be accused, for example, of just trying to stir up fears about China and relying too heavily on the China card and avoiding discussing a policy that is not directly within China. So that's part of it. Um, I mean, obviously, China does play a factor here. Uh, China conducted unprecedented live fire drills around Taiwan shortly after the visit to Taiwan by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Mm. Uh, but that's actually not a very strong reaction in Taiwan in terms of disruption to daily life. Uh, people were actually much more panicked about China when it came to for example, Hong Kong, or shortly after the invasion of Ukraine, because it allowed for kind of projecting these long-standing anxieties in Taiwan about an invasion onto a kind of uh, example of something happening elsewhere in the world. But China actually conducting deals around Taiwan did not actually affect it. At the same time, uh, there was also some impact on domestic politics in terms of the election through that. Uh, the KMT, for example, uh, there was the, the vice chair visited China shortly after the live fire drills, and there was uh, kind of backlash even from within the KMT from younger members of the party that, well, maybe it's not the great timing to do that mm. because that associates the party with China. So maybe hold off on this trip. But Party Central still went ahead with that trip. So that's a bit puzzling there, actually. 
Well, Brian, you know, uh, as we mentioned in the intro, when we talk about this midterm election, again, as you mentioned, most of the issues are centered related to domestic issues. Like, for example, in the U.S., people are very much concerned regarding the word economy. So in other words, when people look at how the world is changing under globalization, regardless how the political parties are battling against each other, but economy is the number one issue that is everyone's mind. Now, help us to understand for the midterm election in Taiwan, what are some of the major or significant domestic issues that people actually care about? So in other words, it's not all about politics there must be something else that people are actually paying attention and would like to see much greater or even significant result after this election yeah i mean i think the economy does definitely play a big role in that because people want growth to happen i mean taiwan because of the fact that it's not as affected by covid by uh, compared to other countries in the world it actually did help the economy and so this is another thing that the dpp the currently ruling administration is campaigning on its record during COVID, its record in terms of economic growth and so forth and the kmt has not really come up with a, as much of a kind of comprehensive economic plan to distinguish itself its own policies from the dpp but historically it has leverage on the claim and this then does return actually to the china frame that taiwan's economic future lies with china and so that strengthening ties political ties to china that's the way to have a stronger economy because for example then there are business opportunities in china um, there's manufacturing you can outsource work to china uh that kind of thing it's just is obviously a large market and it's much uh, there's much lower barrier to entry in terms of for example language and culture for obvious reasons um and so that's that's where that happened. but then for example now for the kmt that is not always the most helpful now, because I think particularly when you do have China conducting military threats, that actually can be damaging to the KMP's reputation. You know, coming with economic incentives that would end saying that we'll only offer these to you if the KMP is in power. That might have been a more productive approach than, for example, the live fire drills. Um, but then apart from that, apart from the fundamental split that has always existed in Taiwan's politics, that the main political cleavage is between independence and unification. That is the big difference between two parties, and a lot of times then their their platforms actually do not substantially differ except for that. So there are a lot of them are actually competing on this kind of basis of party ID, uh, but actually in this sense, there still is not this, this robust discussion, for example, of economics or domestic policy that one would actually hope to see during elections. Well, Brian, but in reality, but when we talk about this economy in China, again, as a matter of fact, People has been very disappointed uh, uh, towards the China economy in China, you know, given this zero COVID policy and also the aging population. So in other words, that even though, as we mentioned in the intro, that current sitting President Xi Jinping, it's hoping that his third term uh, presidency is going to bring some significant or major changes. So if China's economy really impact or really has direct correlation related to Taiwan, but given the fact, again, as we mentioned before, China's economic situation, it's not very promising at this moment. So how does that even impact on Taiwan at this moment? So in other words, if there is a strong connection, but meanwhile, China, it's not dependable. And I want to be careful. It's not reliable at this moment. What is the strategy for Taiwan at this moment? So that's actually a very interesting question, too, because before COVID, China's economy was slower. Mm. And then after COVID, now there's an enormous impact from COVID zero, uh, that rolling lockdowns will happen. I mean, if you're in China, you might just get stuck there for quite a while and you don't know where you can leave because of COVID zero. And so this also definitely has an impact on growth in China. So I think particularly 
uh, for Taiwan, and particularly for the KMT, which is, as I mentioned, is leverage on these ties with China economically and saying this is Taiwan's future, that's actually something that's very difficult to get around, the specter of COVID zero. And so they oftentimes you do actually have pan blue actors, particularly from pan blue media outlets that have been in the past accused of illicit ties to China, including something funding or say in their editorial direction from the Chinese government, insisting that COVID zero is the best policy that this actually is the way to maintain growth to actually avoid uh, the spread of this deadly disease, COVID, and so forth. Uh, but actually, it doesn't really fly in the face of people's experience. And that's that's something that's uh, very hard to surmount. And I think particularly because of China at times having punitive measures directed at Taiwan that are economic, for example, banning uh, agricultural products or fish, mm. uh, for example, products such as grouper or pineapple or citrus, uh, then depending on which field you are, the Chinese market starts to be perceived as risky, that you might actually get shut out of the Chinese market for political reasons, depending on the kind of political climate. If you do have something like policy visit happening, perhaps, which is, you know, that visit is totally out of control, you cannot control it happening or not, you might get shut out of the market. Because sometimes uh, China has framed its measures, economic measures, as targeting, quote-unquote, pro-independence companies. But then it actually is targeting companies, to make an example of them, uh, that have actually donated to not just the DPP, but also KMT. And so companies are actually somewhat bipartisan. Its, it's measures have been a bit scattershot, and that actually results in general fear of the Chinese market. And then coupled with, for example, just the... Uh, but economic disruption that is still occurring at present. Uh, if there's this perception of China as a politically risky market, market in which you also will have things like COVID zero and rolling lockdowns, it might make sense to decouple and go elsewhere. And so, for example, mm-hmm. transitioning to Southeast Asia uh, in terms of your outsourced kind of factory work, or uh, just in terms of economic ties. And so, I think that's kind of an interesting dynamic to observe right now. Brian, you mentioned something quite interesting regarding the word unification. Now, I want to sh- uh, I'm read something to you. Based on the recent survey, less than 7% of the Taiwanese said they support unification either as soon as possible or eventually, which down from 20% in 1994. But meanwhile, around 30% say they favor independence either as soon as possible or eventually up from about 11% in 1994. And also based on the survey, a lot more Taiwanese today identify themselves less and less as Chinese, but more patriotic in Taiwan. So in other words, these younger generations or the people who participated in the survey regarding this unification or separation, I think people have this strong reactions. Now, my first question is, how much do you think that has something to do with the whole current deadlock between Taiwan and China? And also, how do you think we understand the significant drop that when we talk about the unification either as soon as possible or eventually, what does that mean? How can we make up or how can we interpret those numbers? So I think a crucial period is definitely in the past 10 years in which Xi Jinping has taken power. You have, for example, the 2014 Sunflower Movement, which is one of the largest social movements in Taiwan's history, if not the largest, involving the occupation of the legislature against a trade bill that was to be signed with China. That was a massive generational moment for young people in Taiwan. When you think about it, that was only... 2014. That was two years after Xi Jinping took power. Mm. And before that, there had been several years in which China had a period of opening up and things seemed to be getting better in terms of liberalization or political freedom and so forth. But even then, there was that fear of China. And so now after Xinjiang, now after Hong Kong, that fear is just so much worse. And I think really China has been its own worst enemy in terms of luring over young people in Taiwan because 
it has often just kind of uh, just really shot itself in the foot. Coming in with a, a velvet glove is actually much more useful than an iron fist with military measures and so forth. The attempts to militarily intimidate Taiwan. I mean, just there is there's survey data that does show that, for example, um, after statements by President Xi Jinping, which he said that force is still on the table for achieving reunification, then approval for Tsai would actually have been doing not as good in the polls mm. they shot up. And so people rallied around the leader in this kind of time of threat. And so I think in that sense, that's an example of how China has not helped itself with regards to kind of winning over young people. And so it's paradoxical. I think, for example, the military exercise recently, that's another example. I mean, there was not a strong reaction because people are quite used to it. Uh, you've had, for example, the daily air incursions that have been going on near daily on some occasions since uh, National Day a year ago. Uh, but I think in that sense, China really kind of sunk the boat on achieving unification in, in its own timeline. And I think that's, that's something that China maybe not does not always realize in that sense. Because, Brian, in reality, when we talk about this ongoing political relations between Taiwan and China, we have to bring U.S. into the conversation. Again, based on the latest report, that people are saying that U.S. is trying to distance itself again away from Taiwan because, again, given the fact that uh, Washington is hoping to uh, repair this broken relationship with Beijing. Now, everyone is worried if a United States decides to do so, how much uh, uh, do you think that Taiwan is going to prepare for the result? So in other words, because we have seen the war in Ukraine and we've seen the U.S. reactions towards the war in Ukraine, somehow America is no longer, or I want to be careful, somehow America is not actually dependable when it comes to international crisis. Now, you're the expert. Help us to understand what would ha happen to Taiwan, hypothetically, if U.S. decides to pull away from Taiwan and, in, and instead of paying much greater interest in uh, uh, building this relationship or to rediscovering this relationship with Beijing. Yeah, so I think there's some caution of the U.S. because of that, the fear that the U.S. will eventually turn around and decide, okay, well, we actually need better relations with China. So mm. because this has happened in the past, there's concern about Taiwan being thrown under the bus. Uh, Ukraine has also seen an example of, for example, possibly uh, posing a model of how the, react, the U.S. might react to a potential Chinese invasion. Uh, for example, not getting directly involved but providing weapons to Taiwan. And so then there's discussion of how to maintain this then. And for example, that affects the planning for possible war scenarios. I mean, what you do if there's no intervention from an outside power it's only you fighting china mm. uh or do you have a situation in which you're actually attempting to hold off until a potential ally intervenes on your behalf and so that that affects kind of planning for uh, wartime completely and so i think that that's another kind of a paradox and i think then uh, particularly now there's uh some reassurance after the policy visits that the U.S. does support Taiwan. These diplomatic visits serve the purpose of reassuring that the U.S. is willing to take and shoulder risks in terms of the uh, commitment to Taiwan. But then at the same time, there's still this fundamental concern regarding that the U.S. might turn away, uh, their flip-flops by Biden uh, and so forth. It's not always very clear where the U.S. policy is. There's also some arm twisting going on in terms of just the uh, kind of planning for war scenarios, asymmetric versus symmetric warfare, for example, uh, different strategies or the different scenarios in which a invasion is uh, invasion is happening. For example, there's such a real strong reaction to the Pelosi visit and live fire drills from outside of Taiwan, but within Taiwan, there was not a strong reaction. I think sometimes then the perception from outside may be that, well, Taiwan is complacent, but not actually taking the steps around their own, own defense. Uh, they are actually not you know, reacting to these threats in any way. 
Brian, how concerning is the growth of Chinese military at this moment? Again, as we mentioned before, during Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, and we've seen these drastic measures under the Chinese government implementing this military strategy and also this military exercise around the island. But meanwhile, people are very concerned among the international communities that Chinese government, regardless Xi Jinping is going to be the next president or not, but the military power should not be underestimated. But meanwhile, U.S. are very much concerned also regarding the growth of the Chinese military. So at this moment, it's not just about the political political influence. It's not just about these economic ties. But meanwhile, China is pushing very hard domestically and internationally regarding this military presence. Now, in Taiwan or for Taiwan, Taiwanese government, how much concerning is that? And is there anything that we could do uh, uh, between the Taiwan and U.S. to, I mean, I don't want to say to stop, but to minimize the threat of the Chinese military power? Yeah, that's absolutely a concern. And so, for example, uh, there are fundamental barriers that still remain to China conducting an invasion. Uh, for example, just the lift capacity that's getting the number of troops over to Taiwan to mount a long-term invasion. China does not have the number of boats uh, to do that. And it's a very complex operation or to actually conduct that, you know, air, sea, land, and so forth. Um, but China is seeking to protect naval power. You have the new aircraft carriers being constructed. Uh, for example, China fired a missile over Taiwan for the first time during the live fire drills. It's intended to signal capacities to conduct a decapitation strike, uh, not capital leadership. And then after that, in theory, resistance is disorganized. Um, but then China will actually try to adopt to uh, uh, deal with the capacities that current lacks in order to have that. And so that's a challenge. And so that affects, for example, the armed forces that Taiwan takes on, uh, which are intended to contract Chinese capacities. But then that is always changing. And so I, uh, that's also a question. Uh, I mean, it's definitely not an immediate scenario in which invasion happens unless China is incredibly foolhardy. Um, I mean, there's also the view that, for example, watching the results of the invasion of Ukraine and with Russia coming in as this large power, but then actually not faring too well, that might actually have a restraining effect on China's actions. Uh, but it's still to be seen, and the military threat is still there, and it is growing. So there's definitely not. And so, for example, there's a question of civilian readiness. Uh, there's civil defense training, which is much more uh, prevalent now in Taiwan society than it was before, mm. uh, in the wake of Ukraine. Uh, you do have discussion of arms purchases, what Taiwan wants and needs, and so forth. Uh, also ways to think about self-reliance, for example, just if you don't actually have, uh, for example, an ally coming to your defense. But even just like basic things like, you know, accounting for inventory, how much food or energy supply do you have on a month-to-month -month basis that you can potentially deal with an invasion or a blockade scenario or any of these kind of intermediate scenarios that are in between a full-scale invasion of Taiwan by China, but also it does involve some measure of conflict. Brian, I want to shift our attention to something more urgent for Taiwan, which means uh, after October 13th, correct me if I'm wrong, Taiwan decides to reopen up itself to the world. And we know that because the pandemic and because this whole global uh, uh, challenge that more nations close down the borders because this pandemic. But we know that recently Japan announced its reopening up to the world. And now Taiwan, uh, after after the October 13th, is going to do the same measure. Now, the same question I asked other experts, for Taiwan to make the decision, is this a desperate measure or is it really to use this economic uh, or use this reason to boost this economic uh, uh, situation? What's the logistics behind that? 
Yeah, that's right. And so actually it was debated ahead of time uh, among experts and analysts, like would the Tsai administration do this before elections or would it do it after? Because much of the world has reopened, uh, things are getting mixed normal. And so Taiwan risks being left out of uh, kind of the economy or in terms of economic ties if it does not reopen. Uh, at the same time, there definitely will be an uptick of cases because you have more people coming in and COVID spreading that way and potentially new variants as well. Uh, but then it, that's another incentive for the Tsai administration to move in a very gradualist manner so that there's not a sudden uptick of cases in which people panic and then they electorally punish the Tsai administration at the polls by doing it in a gradual manner. And so that's a way to kind of reconnect. And I think Taiwan particularly had its eye on other countries in the region in terms of when to reopen. I mean, can point to other examples and say, well, they did this too, so it's not so bad if we do this. And I think if Tsai had waited until after elections to do that, after the midterm elections, she would be accused of doing this for political purposes, but not actually making decisions on the basis of what is sound COVID policy for public health, but waiting until then. Um, I think dovetailing with our discussion of China before that, with China adhering to COVID zero and other countries reopening, this is actually a way to also strengthen ties between Taiwan and those countries that are reopened, whereas China has not actually reopened. And so I think that's another incentive for Taiwan to move at this juncture. Brian, how much risk do you think that Taiwan is taking today by opening up to the world? Because again, if we, let's say if uh, Taiwan receive more tourists, you know, across the continents, but again, right now, for some parts of the world, that COVID is still rather devastating. So in other words, there's no promise that COVID is going to be completely eliminated and hopefully that it's going to be eliminated very soon. So how much risk do you think Taiwan is actually taking by making the decision? It's definitely a risk, but then there's cases that are in like around 50,000 per day currently. So it doesn't seem like too bad in terms of imported cases compared to domestic cases. It's not actually too different. Uh, the rate of infection is actually quite similar between Taiwan and other parts of the world at present. And when you do uh, maintain border controls, the thing is border is still porous. People still do get in in various ways and they do bring in COVID. Mm -hmm. And so it would get in in some form. And so that's one of the difficulties of maintaining the definite border controls. And so there's always, that's always the end game, uh, some kind of reintegration of the international world. And so Taiwan is moving at that present. And sometimes waiting too long actually then can be uh, damaging as well. I mean, then people are discouraged, for example, from getting COVID vaccines, which are necessary to deal with this. I mean, it's going to become a yearly thing now. We're always going to be dealing with COVID. And so particularly because Taiwan borders are closed for so long, that actually had the uh, effect for a while ago of that many people did not go for vaccines because they didn't think there was a need. They didn't think COVID was coming in or that it was something that would they would have to deal with, but at the end of the day, it is actually. And so I think that there's also that. Brian, two more questions before letting you go. As we mentioned in the intro, Xi Jinping is going to declare his third term presidency less than two weeks, which is going to be very important, not only for the country of China, but also the whole world is going to paying attention. Now, recently that Xi Jinping stepped out his comfort zone, travel internationally, met up with Vladimir Putin, again, given the fact that war in Ukraine changed the entire world in addition to the pandemic. Now, help us to understand at this moment, hypothetically, if Xi Jinping is going to be successfully declare his presidency, how much do you think it, the current situation in China, politically speaking, and also this economically speaking, really to hurt his credibility? So in other words, what do you think his strategy, strategies are going to reinstate his uh, political status in order to move the country forward? Yeah, it's a question. I think that particularly there's concern that uh, when you are trying to consolidate power, having a success, something that burnishes your historical credentials for this unprecedented third term, uh, that could be something that's seen once. And so there's concern, for example, that that might be regarding Taiwan, saying, well, I brought Taiwan back to the fold, and that may be 
involved in mm. some kind of foolhardy action that is not very logical, actually, or rational, involving military action in the direction of Taiwan. So that's something that people definitely fear. Uh, but it is true that his power is not unchecked in China. I mean, you look at the composition of, for example, the people attending the uh, Congress and so forth, and that he was finalizing it recently. Uh, and it does actually mean that there are checks on his power. I think COVID zero or the slowing economy, that is actually a blow to his credibility. But then that also, I mean, it does look like he will have a third term. Uh, the question then is that, will he be pushed to some kind of action to try to consolidate that, which might be dangerous? And so I think that's that's a matter of concern for Taiwan. Brian, I want to wrap up our conversation by going back to a very simple question today. When we talk about or when we use the word democracy and across the world, international uh, uh, communities are very concerned regarding the word democracy. Some call it the democracy it's broken or other put it the democracy it's rather fragile, not only in the West, but also in many countries in Southeast Asia or in Europe. Now, from your perspective, how should we understand the word democracy today when we look at three largest countries, Russia, China, and also the U.S. are actually competing with each other and also they're on different levels when we talk about political engagement. How concerning is the democracy or the democratic system today? And is there anything that we could do to make sure that Beijing, Washington and uh, Russia could coexist at the same time? Yeah, it's a very challenging question. I mean, I think that every country of those three claim to be a democracy, but they have very different meanings of, as to what that means. And so I think that's the question, and it's actually very hard getting them on the same page or agreement. I mean, they have actually different ideological systems. They tend to be superior, and so I think that's the challenge. But I just think then thinking about, like, what is actually the system that benefits the most people or is the most effective? And that's the question of all. And I think particularly regarding particularly any of these countries, especially China and Russia, you have leaders, autocratic leaders that take power in the name of democracy. And then how do you actually think about what is the people's welfare? Because, for example, CTP precipitating a crisis over Taiwan to consolidate power, that's not exactly the Chinese people's best interest either. Mm. So then getting back to this discussion of what benefits the people, I think that's then key in terms of thinking about democracy. And war between great powers uh, that all claim to be democratic, that's not democratic at all. That doesn't actually help people. So what is the system that benefits people? I think those questions are worth keeping in mind. Very good. Again, as we continue to pay attention to not only the news in Taiwan, but also regarding China, Russia, and Washington, it's rather crucial that we know today throughout the pandemic, one thing we learned, it's alliance or partnership, it's better than enemies or any other options. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking to Brian Hugh, and Brian is one of the founding editors of New Bloom, and he's a freelance journalist, as well as a translator, and I strongly encourage everyone to go online, look for the New Bloom. It's an online magazine covering activism and youth politics in Taiwan and the Asia Pacific, which founded in Taiwan in 2014 in the wake of the Sunflower Movement. Brian, thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show and really appreciate your insights regarding the midterm election in Taiwan and also, of course, this economic policy changes in Taiwan. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.